everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to It's All About Food. This is a big day, everybody. We have Marion Nissel here for a wonderful interview. I'm a big fan. And she has come out with a memoir, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. I'm bowing my head here, Marion. I've been following you for a long time, and I just, what can I say? You're awesome. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> so I learned so much in this book. Number one, I enjoyed reading it. You're a wonderful writer. When I first got to know you, you were pretty established at NYU, and I thought you did some groundbreaking work that a lot of us have since followed and always look for, for information. And then, of course, you had a whole life before that. And I didn't even know what your personal life was when you were there. And it, a lot of it is in this book and it's fascinating. And I have a lot more respect for you after reading the memoir than from what I already knew about you. One thing that I enjoyed reading about um, is the fact that you're a woman and you were a woman in a scientific world and you had a lot of obstacles along the way, which we realize. And I can relate to that because I have a background in chemical engineering. I worked in the semiconductor industry for 20 years. And sure, there was plenty of sexism. And some of it I didn't even, I didn't even like pay attention to. I was just wanting to do my work. But then when you reflect, you realize, oh my God, this happened. And I don't know how much of it you realize what's going on in the moment or after the fact. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I think a lot of it was after the fact. Um, one, of the, one of the advantages or benefits from writing a memoir is it uh, forces you to reflect back on what happened, but from the standpoint of your present stage in life. So it's retrospective, but uh, it's, it's not always easy to capture how I felt exactly at that moment because I'm looking at it both from the standpoint of how I felt when it happened and what I had to repress at the time, and then how I think about it now when so much has changed in attitudes towards women in the workplace. I mean, I came of age at a time when uh, really the only options for women were to get married and have children. And the only women with careers, this is a slight exaggeration, but it's only a slight exaggeration. The only women with careers were women who didn't marry. Or what? Uh, were women what? Who did not marry, who were single, who remained single, um, and they were able to have careers. A married woman could not. And one of the things I explain from the incidents in my book is how that, you know, why it was so difficult for married women to have careers. Uh, you know, you were blocked at every turn in ways that seem unimaginable right now. Uh, and the, it was just a very, very different era. The way I like to explain it was that when I was in high school, my three closest friends had as their life ambitions to marry a professor, a doctor, and a rabbi, respectively. And they all did. Wow. <laughs> They had very they had very clear goals. I didn't have such goals um, because I grew up in a family in which women didn't have goals. 
And anytime I showed any signs of having a goal, I got slapped down one way or the other. Um, but it was difficult. And I talk about the examples of incidents. You know, a memoir is not biography. And that's the first thing you learn when you're writing a memoir is the difference between a memoir and biography. It's my memory of what happened in my life. And my memory isn't as good as, it's just as bad as everybody else's. I like to refer to this book because I'm a non-fiction writer as, okay, this is my first work of fiction. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I fact-checked what I could and the, uh, but some of it wasn't fact-checkable because the players have died or the the corroborate aren't around anymore. Uh, but it was, you know, I the incidents that I that seemed most searing at the time, the ones that were so indelibly uh, put into my memory that I can still remember them, are the ones that I talk about. And uh, anytime I read a memoir by somebody who's my generation, they have the same stories because that was normal for women. Um, it was very unusual for women to live alone, to have careers, to do anything other than to get married and have children, which, because I was trying very hard to conform, I did. <laughs> I got married at 19. I still can't believe that. <laughs> you were a trailblazer in many ways. As a woman, as a career person, and what you've done with the subject of food. And it's funny, I think all of us know this, but when it comes to memory of a certain event, everybody has a different, a different story. It's fun sometimes when you watch interviews of like four or five people who have been in the same event and they all say, oh, no, it didn't happen that way. So we all perceive things very differently. Well, I like your version of your life. Well, this is definitely mine. And as people are reading the book, I'm starting to hear from people who I've known for a long time who say, well, your fictional account. <laughs> they didn't remember it the way you did. They didn't remember it the way I did. Although yeah. sometimes I get confirmation of things that I remember. And that's kind of nice, too. Well, that's, that's the interesting thing. You're in a situation and somebody will say something and they may mean it in a certain way and you perceive it as a completely different way and you may be taking it wrong or right and it's just a different story for everybody okay so i've made a gazillion notes i'm going to talk touch on a few of them we'll see how far we get early in the book you mentioned spinach and mashed potatoes and i just had to bring that up because my dad never cooked but that was one of these dishes that he always liked, I think, because his mother made it for him. And then when I was young and I didn't want to eat my spinach, you know, that's how they hid it for me in the mashed potatoes. And it became the, a family comfort dish, spinach and mashed potatoes. I've never seen anybody mention it before. And you mentioned it. Well, I, I, was trying, I was trying to remember what the family cooking was like. I couldn't remember very much about it. It was mostly pretty dull. Um, and I didn't really discover food until much later. But the, um, yeah, spinach is pretty good, actually. It is. Especially okay, it doesn't have to be canned spinach, okay? It oh, can no, be no, fresh no. or frozen, not canned. No, but not canned. And a little butter helps. Absolutely. The other thing you mentioned, so I'm a little younger, and 
but I related to a lot of things that you were talking about from your day. And you also mentioned, I wrote a note here, cars or nose jobs for their 16th birthday. I remember when I was in high school, that was the thing. My family couldn't afford all these special things, but a lot of people were getting cars or nose jobs or their ears pinned. And and it's only gotten worse, I suppose, as time goes on, but that was definitely a thing. Yeah, that was a description of my high school. I went to a high school that was largely Jewish and the- And uh, so did I. Um, and the, oh, well, then you'll be interested in one of the fact check stories. Um, or what, what I talk about in the book is I only applied to two colleges when I went to college. Uh, I lived in California and I had good grades, so I knew I could get into the University of California system. So I applied to Berkeley where I eventually went. And I also applied to Stanford. And there were four students from my high school who applied to Stanford. And the only one who got in was the one who wasn't Jewish. And I said in the memoir, perhaps that this happened perhaps by coincidence, but Stanford has just published a public apology to Jewish students who went to my specific high school in my specific year Wow! for uh, establishing a policy that restricted the number of students that they accepted from my high school in Los Angeles. They owe you an honorary degree. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a fact that got checked. Wow. <laughs> There's so many little nuggets like this in your book that uh, I really, really enjoyed. You made a, an interesting point that because you were self-taught, you lacked confidence in what you knew. This was, again, early in the book. I don't know if you remember specifically that what that was related to, but I think that's a really important point. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, well, I never had much confidence. It took a really, really, really long time. And part of the lack of confidence came from my family background where you know, I happened to go up with an extremely critical mother. Um, but the, um, the rest of it came from always, you know, lots of people suffer from imposter syndrome. And it's very common in academia where everybody seems smarter than you are and seems to know more. And because my doctorate is in molecular biology, where I always felt like an imposter because I couldn't work as hard as everybody else um, and where I wasn't male. Uh, and that was a problem. And, the, um, and then I got handed a nutrition course to teach on my first teaching job. That was how I got interested in it. I loved it. It was love at first sight. I've never looked back. Um, but because I was doing the reading on my own and reading, learning it from textbooks and from original research and from doing an enormous amount of reading about the topic, you know, I didn't, I had never taken nutrition classes. And I, I never really took a nutrition class um, ever because I was teaching them long before. I ever was in a nutrition program, and then I didn't have to take any of the nutrition classes because by that time I had written the book. So, the um, so I always felt as if anybody who had studied these topics in a more systematic way would have known more than I did about it, and uh, I consequently overprepared. Uh, so that by the time I was done with all that, 
I knew a lot and it took me a long time to realize how much I knew. I'm remembering a commercial. I don't remember what it was for, but the character was playing Abraham Lincoln. And he talked about how he had read a lot of books. <laughs> he had learned a lot from reading books. And that, that piece of paper is, is important to a lot of people, but I think you know now that just because you have a degree in something or a certification in something, it doesn't mean that you know everything. Well, I don't think it's possible to know everything. Well, but... or, and, or even be, well, I'll give you an example. So I don't have a degree in nutrition and I've been studying food all my life. I have a background in chemical engineering. I went through advanced ovarian cancer in 2006 and I should be dead. I'm alive. Hooray. That's another story. But I can't tell you how many dietitians I met in the hospitals. And of course, the food they were feeding us in the hospitals was a disaster. Legendary. But, but they didn't know anything. And I'm sure they were all nice people, but they didn't know anything about nutrition. And they had been through a program and they were hired to do something. And they did not know current knowledge on nutrition. Yeah, I think that it, you know, it depends on where you go and what you do and what you're interested in. I was interested in nutrition. So for me, it wasn't work. And I had been trained in molecular biology and my particular graduate training um, required us and encouraged us and rewarded us for not only reading original research, but also reading the references in the papers that we were reading, and then reading the references to those papers until we got to the point where we weren't learning anything new. And that turned out to be fabulous training. Um, and it was particularly fabulous training for self-study of nutrition, because there are so many myths about nutrition that if you go back and read the original research and read the papers on which that research is based, and go back a few generations, you come to something that just doesn't make any sense at all. And so the idea, you know, the one that just leaps to mind is the idea of rebound scurvy. Uh, there was an idea when everybody was taking huge amounts of vitamin C to prevent colds or cancer, according to what Linus Pauling said, um, one of the arguments about that was that if you took a lot of vitamin C, which is a water-soluble vitamin, and any excess vitamin C that you take is going to get peed out. Mm -hmm. um, and yet there was this idea that if you took a lot of vitamin C, your body, when you stopped taking a lot, would behave as if you had scurvy and you'd start to develop skin lesions and all of the other problems. Well, if you go back and read the original research, which I did, you get back to one study done on a rabbit. Um, and the rabbit actually didn't get rebound scurvy. I mean, it was just, the whole thing was totally a myth. So when I did, when I was at the point at which I was teaching at the medical school in San Francisco and giving lectures on specific topics and teaching, in the first year biochemistry course at the medical school, I was preparing lectures and reading all this stuff at great depth. I came out of that experience with a pretty solid background that I felt pretty comfortable about, but it took a while. 
Well, well, everything you just mentioned, I think, is one of the key, what should I call it, the key foundations the under who you are in your work. Even today in 2022, we don't get people doing this, reading something, going to the references, finding the source, going back, finding the original source, and then making sense of it all. That's what everybody who says they're an expert in something and is speaking about something should do, but it just doesn't happen. It doesn't well, it happen may, enough. It may in some fields. I mean, the internet has really changed the way people learn things. It's certainly changed the way I learn things. <laughs> um, but those, but those, um, you know, those basic studying skills that I learned when I was in graduate school, I still apply to what I read on the internet. And you know, I'm very fortunate in having access to two major academic libraries at NYU and at Cornell. Um, so I have access to these things. Almost everything is online now. If it's not online, I can get it. Um, and not everybody has that kind of access, True. but I, take it, I do take advantage of it. And we're grateful that you do. I want to talk a little bit about when you were preparing, helping to prepare the first ever Surgeon General's report on nutrition and what all came out of that. I was kind of, well, in one way I was shocked, but on the other way I wasn't shocked because I've heard other stories about what has happened with governmental reports. But can you talk a little bit about that experience? Sure. Um, I should say that um, after teaching at the medical school, I went to public health school. And, as, and I also wrote a book about nutrition for medical students. So I had just finished writing a book about nutrition and everything, summarizing it for medical students who did not have nutrition classes, which meant everybody, um, and still does, pretty much. And the, and the job that I got was... Um, as a senior nutrition policy advisor in the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion in Health and Human Services. Um, and my job was to edit the first ever and only Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health, which came out in 1988. And it was a two-year project from the time that I got the job until the time it came out. Um, and I was told on the first day that I walked into that office that no matter what the research said, that report would never say eat less meat. Uh, because if it said eat less of anything, the people who produced that particular food would complain to their friends in Congress, they would get their lobbyists involved, the report would never come out. So we were going to have to be very diplomatic about the way uh, things were expressed. And the report did Instead of saying eat less meat, the report said eat less saturated fat, which dietary guidelines still say. And um, everybody understood that saturated fat was a euphemism for beef. And you were supposed to understand that saturated fat was a euphemism for beef because beef was the largest single food source of saturated fat. So you're supposed to know that. So it was politics from day one. And I had moved there from Berkeley, where I was a little vague on the difference between Republicans and Democrats. I learned that very quickly. 
I was even vaguer on the difference between USDA and Health and Human Services. I learned that difference very quickly. And I was in constant trouble because uh, if you work for a federal agency, you're never supposed to express an opinion about anything. Um, and I intend to express opinions. Um, so I was in trouble all the time, the entire time I was in that office. It was uh, touch and go the whole time. And then, of course, the uh, Washington also divides neatly into people who think that Washington is a better place to live than New York City, and those who think that New York City is a better place to live than Washington, D.C. And I knew which category I was in very, very early on and started looking for jobs in New York right away. Um, but mostly I was in trouble in Washington because I had opinions about the, I mean, by the time I had finished teaching at Brandeis University, teaching at the UCSF School of Medicine, I had opinions about nutrition. And they were pretty strong opinions because they were based on the kind of research I had done. Um, and I didn't want to have to hold back on them or pretend that they didn't exist because they were going to make some food producer unhappy. So there were difficulties. Very difficult. I've been an activist in the food world for a long time, and many of us talk about the best approach, if there even is a best approach, you know, the one-on-one, -on -one, grassroots, getting individuals involved in learning about the different things going on in our food system, or by changing policy, of course, all are necessary. But how can we ever really make significant positive change in policy with the government operating the way it does. I mean, this was back in 1988, and has it gotten better or worse? It's gotten much worse. The, um, you know, I mean, I get asked that question all the time. How do you change? How do you make change? And you have two choices. Um, you can change government, or you can increase the strength of civil society. And I think both are really important to do. And food advocates have to be working on both areas. Uh, you can change individual behavior, but uh, it's much better if you've got policies backing up those kinds of changes. And advocacy is very effective when it's done well. Um, and I wish that all of the groups that we're working on food advocacy would get together and form some kind of political party uh, oh, and, yeah. and, maybe, and maybe get some real political power. That would be good. That would be good. Okay. I'm making a note there. It's really hard though, because there are so many egos involved. So you have all these different organizations and all this, we can align on some things, but not everything. And it's really hard to work together. Well, nobody <laughs> ever said this was easy. That's why it's called work. <laughs> Very good. Well, one last thing on this report, the Surgeon General's first and only. Uh, I believe you wrote that the focus changed to focus on foods and not nutrients. I'm not, I'm not sure that's right. Um, the federal dietary advice focuses on food when they talk about what you should eat more of, and they focus on nutrients when they talk about what you should eat less of. So they talk about saturated fat, salt, and sugar when they're talking about what you should avoid. They don't talk about the main sources. 
of those nutrients, which are meat and dairy products for saturated fat, uh, snack foods for salt, and sugar-sweetened beverages for sugar. Um, so, so it's only in recent years that dietary guidelines have started talking about reducing soft drinks and you know, trying to limit the amount of um, processed foods or these kinds of things. And they don't say it very clearly because there's still too much political opposition. Yeah. So you have a fascinating history working in a variety of different places that your book goes into. I've only known of you since you've been at NYU. And uh, NYU has a great reputation from my limited perspective, from people I know who have gone there and graduated. And I had no idea of the department that you started and the condition it was in when you started and what you turned it into. Well, yes, I, I went to NYU to chair a department of economics in 1988. Uh, I mean, I didn't even know there were departments of home economics that still existed. Um, and this one was a particularly neglected department um, in ways that, you know, I just couldn't have imagined. The faculty wasn't paid very well. The physical facilities were kind of awful looking. And I tell the story in the book of my first week on the job when I went around and did get acquainted uh, visits with people who were friends of the department or people in agencies that I, I needed to meet because I didn't know anybody in New York. And in, in practically every appointment that I had, and the faculty were all away at an annual meeting of the American Dietetic Association, so there were no faculty around. And as I was meeting all these people, they all said exactly the same thing. Oh, it's so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. The department really needs you. Um, you know, it's just wonderful. We hope you have a wonderful time with it. And by the way, um, I know it's really early and you only just got here, but there's something I have to mention. And I couldn't imagine what it was, but it turned out to be your kitchen is dirty. <laughs> what? And when I heard this for the third time, I thought, well, I better go take a look at this kitchen which is in another building. And so I got somebody to take me over to the kitchen. When I got off the elevator, I could smell it. Oh. Yeah, walked into the kitchen, and uh, dirty really didn't describe it. It just really didn't. Every single surface was covered with a layer of grease, and embedded into the grease was ample evidence of wildlife. Mm. <clears throat> <laughs> and just everywhere, and I could understand what the smell was because there were there were there was evidence of a very large mouse and cockroach infestation absolutely everywhere. And students were cooking in that kitchen, um, and yeah. the uh, and so there I was with a doctorate in molecular biology, having taught at Brandeis, having taught at a medical school for ten years. And my first job at NYU was to get my kitchen clean. Um, it was a challenge. Now, not all of NYU was like that at that time. Um, or was it? Certainly the part of it that I was in had been neglected for years. Money was an enormous problem. And the university had made some sort of collective decision, or the administration had made a collective decision 
that they were going to bring NYU out of that mm. situation and into a situation as a first class university. And I had been hired to be part of that change. My job was to fix this department in this particular school. Um, and they fired the dean who had hired me the first year I was there. A new dean came in who was also part of the change. And we were on our way. So I had a lot of support for what I, from the administration, for what I was, had been hired to do. I just didn't have any idea how to go about doing it. <laughs> that took a while, too. Um, but eventually, we were able to close the home economics programs, get the kitchen cleaned, uh, do some other things, and hire some faculty who were doing research. Um, but all of that took some number of years. It was fun. It was fun. <laughs> Looking was. back on it, it was fun. It was hard, but it was fun. Yeah, right. And you also were given lodging when you're at NYU, and you got <laughs> you ultimately moved and got what I understand was Ed Koch's apartment. Oh, it was. Yeah, I mean, the first of, I live in NYU housing, and uh, because people. That NYU, one of the reasons that NYU can get the faculty that it gets is that it provides affordable housing in Greenwich Village. and Which is whole, one of the best neighborhoods in Manhattan. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. I mean, the apartments are, or at least my home, but it's very nice. The first apartment that I was given was an apartment that did not have a kitchen. I called it my kitchenless mutant apartment. Um, and I spent the whole first year trying to figure out how to get out of that into something that was a little bit more acceptable. Um, and eventually, uh, the new dean who came in uh, set me up with the housing manager. And he, the housing manager asked me what I wanted. And what I wanted was a garden. So I said, I want either a terrace or a garden. And he said, well, the Koch apartment has a fabulous terrace, but he will never move. I mean, what do you mean he'll never move? I read the New York Times, he's just lost an election. He's moving out of this, his Greenwich Village apartment. Um, and so I went over and looked at it and got it. And that, that was fun. And I have a wonderful, wonderful garden on my 450 square foot terrace where I've got wow. fruit trees, I've got blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, peaches, figs, cherries, tomatoes, lettuce, you know, all that kind of stuff, all in pots. It's kind of wonderful. It is. And if anyone knows anything about New York City real estate, there aren't a lot of terraces in Manhattan, certainly not a lot of gardens. This is really prime, prime real estate. It's something I've enjoyed. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to talk about is your relationship with Julia Child. You got to meet Julia Child. <laughs> oh, I did. I did. Um, and maybe it didn't start out as good as it ended up. No, it ended up just fine. Um, I was a great admirer of Julia Child. I had watched her on television. And more than that, uh, when my children were very young, I moved in a social circle that did what I refer to as competitive home cooking. <laughs> um, we all cooked from mastering the art of French cooking. Um, and tried to outdo each other in uh, the complication uh, and the expense of 
those meals. Um, so I knew her work very well. I had cooked from her book. I thought it was way too complicated. I don't like cooking like that, really. But the uh, everything came out great, but it was took a long time. Um, and Julia was, who only goes by one name, uh, Julia was famous for not liking nutritionists and for complaining that nutritionists had ruined food for everybody by uh, complaining about saturated fat. They had ruined meat, ruined butter, ruined cream, uh, ruined everything that made food delicious, and they were ruining food for the world. Um, and she had famous statements about, oh, they like canned vegetables, oh, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. So um, I had I was hanging around with a group called the Old Rose Preservation Exchange Trust uh, that had the food writer Nancy Jenkins as one of the leaders. And I met Nancy at a meeting and she said, you know, she said, if Julia Child met you, she might change her mind about nutritionists. Um, I thought this was a big stretch, but she said, would you like to meet Julia Child? <gasps> yes, I would. Right, who wouldn't? Uh -huh. Would. And she said, okay, I'll have a dinner party. Um, I live in Boston. Julia lives in, you know, I live in Cambridge. Julia lives in Cambridge. We'll have Julia over to my house. We'll have a we'll have a dinner party. So I thought that was thrilling. A date was set well in advance. I didn't hear anything about it for a very long time. And the week before the dinner was supposed to take place, I called Nancy and said, "You know, I haven't heard anything about this. What's going on?" And she said, "Oh, didn't anybody tell you? I broke my foot." Uh, you know, I live upstairs. I can't host this dinner. And I I thought, well, I have to say sympathetic things about Nancy's foot. And so I said lots of sympathetic things about Nancy's foot. And then finally came out with, I guess that means the dinner's off. And she said, oh, no, didn't anybody tell you? Julia's going to host it at her house. <laughs> so... I got to go to dinner at Julia Child's house in Cambridge in the kitchen, the very same one that is in the Smithsonian Institute now. Wow. Um, and it was not, it was probably the least pleasant dinner experience I've ever had because she was enormously resentful about having been put in the position of having to entertain an enemy nutritionist. And I brought my copy of Mastering the Art of. French cooking with me, um, with the idea that she would see that it was the pages were stuck together with hollandaise sauce or whatever, and she would understand that I had cooked very seriously from this book, but none of that had any effect. And the it was she was, I thought, remarkably rude, um, and <laughs> anything but welcoming and uh, hospitable. Uh, I mean, then she served, for example, the biggest piece of steak I had uh, ever. I had been served in years or eaten in years. I ate it. It was delicious. Um, but it was a lot more meat than I usually eat. But, you know, I mean, we got through all that. And uh, she signed my book, which is what I really wanted her to do. Although not particularly uh, warmly. 
But after that, things got much better. And when at NYU we started developing food studies programs and were looking for faculty for that, I wrote her and asked if she had suggestions for faculty. At that point, things changed. And, um, you know, and I have, everybody has notes from Julia Child. I have my collection of Julia Child notes um, that I quite treasure and I do produce one of them in the book. But things got much better, at least. She never stopped thinking that nutritionists in their focus on nutrients and not food had completely missed the boat. I don't disagree with that. Um, so we got along just fine at the end. Well, I think in terms of food and nutrition and cuisine, we're moving in a good direction. I personally think that healthy, nutritious food can be delicious. Oh, absolutely. And I would like more chefs to work in that direction. Some of them are, not all of them. And some are a bit resentful that some of their favorite ingredients are considered not good for many people. And especially now, because so many people have allergy issues and food issues to so many different ingredients, it's making it really challenging. But I personally believe, and I'll just say it again, I know I just said it, that healthy, nutritious food can also be very beautiful and very delicious. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. That's, and that's part of my mission is to develop some of that and make it more, more available to people so they know that healthy eating is not about deprivation. Can we talk about the food industry and about whether we should blame them or not. We have so many different products out there and there are so many people today for convenience or whatever it is, the things that they're putting in their body aren't even food primarily. Yeah, there are those things that Michael Pollan calls food-like objects. (laughs) Um, I don't like to use the word blame because uh, it's not that food industry executives are sitting behind a conference table saying, how are we going to make Americans fat? <laughs> They're sitting behind a conference table saying, how are we going to sell our products in a food environment in the United States in which 4,000 calories are available for every man, woman, and child, and child every single day, and that's twice as much as the population needs as a whole, and it's a very competitive food environment. And the, the way that I explain it is that food companies are not social service agencies. They're not public health agencies. They're businesses. They have stockholders to please. Even if their executives wanted to produce healthier food or to not produce junk food or not produce ultra-processed food objects, they can't do it because those are the most profitable items in the supermarket. They can, the ingredients can be purchased when they're very inexpensive. They sit on the shelf forever. People love them. They're formulated so that people will love them. Nowadays, the term is addictive. Um, okay, if that's the term you want to use, fine. But um, it, it's the whole business of you can't eat just one. And we now have enormous amounts of evidence really overwhelming evidence that these kinds of food products, what we're now calling ultra-processed, industrially produced, 
not looking like the foods from which they were derived, can't be made in home kitchens, that these foods uh, are strongly associated with all kinds of chronic disease, overweight-related chronic diseases, higher mortality from COVID-19, earlier mortality in general, um, and that we know, and that's association, but we know from a controlled clinical trial that there's something about these food products that makes people eat more calories from them without realizing that they're eating more calories. So if overweight is a problem, which it is for three quarters of American adults, the first thing you do is you say, you cut back on ultra-processed foods, but these are the most profitable items in the supermarket. Uh, so for food companies, this is an impossible request. They just simply can't do it. And I remember going to a meeting on food marketing that was held at the White House uh, by Michelle Obama. And after the meeting, which was about, which contained a plea from Mrs. Obama that food companies stop marketing to children, stop marketing these products to children, um, we broke up into smaller groups and there were food industry executives at my in my group session who said, you know, we would love to stop marketing to children, but our stockholders won't let us. And so there you are. That's the problem. This has to do with the economics of our food system, which is why we so badly need food system change. Amen. We need food system change. We're in a very interesting place right now with very polarized parties. And we have an election coming up. It's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that. But it certainly affects our food system. And the very minimum that people can do is educate themselves. But even that's difficult because there's so much information and a lot of people don't even know what, what's good information and what isn't. You mention in your book a group called Consumer Freedom. And they've been around a long time. And I, I'm even on one of their lists, you know, and I'm not even high profile, <laughs> but they, and, and the thing that was a little frustrating to me is they didn't even get my information right. But they, it's, I don't even know, I haven't followed them recently, but they had a website and they went after all kinds of people in the alternative health movement uh, that weren't promoting salt, sugar, and oil, and processed foods, and we're promoting the opposite, and talking about how evil and wicked we are, were, and are, and you were also targeted, were you not? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the Center for Consumer Freedom uh, is a public relations agency that works for food companies, um, and cigarette companies, and other kinds of companies making nefarious products of one kind or another. Um, and they're very good at what they do. They put out extremely funny ads. They're the people who were responsible during the time that um, Bloomberg was mayor in New York City and was trying to put a cap on soda sizes. Mm. Um, they published an, a, a full page ad in the New York Times of Mayor Bloomberg wearing a dress saying, oh. New York needs a mayor, not a mammy. 
um, and you know, sort of focusing on the nanny state. So it was a very funny ad, and they're very clever about that sort of thing. And the other thing that they're clever about is that they're set up in such a way that you can't track their funders. Um, so they they have it set up so that um, legally, so that their funders are protected and. When I was writing my book, So the Politics, which came out in 2015, I had contact with executives at Coke and Pepsi. And I asked them flat out, are you funding the Center for Consumer Freedom? And they both told me the same thing. We used to, but we stopped. On the other hand, both of them fund the American Beverage Association, which does fund the Center for Consumer Freedom. So Coke and Pepsi were not tarnished by that kind of, of, of that kind of funding, but they did it in a sort of roundabout way. Um, I haven't heard from the Center for Consumer Freedom lately, so I don't really know what they're up to. They've been kind of quiet. Yeah. So, so it may be that people have stopped them. It was frustrating because I was working for a nonprofit and I used to get phone calls from them because they wanted to see our, our tax filings which nonprofits are obligated to make them public to those who ask, but you knew that they were doing it with a, diff with a motive that wasn't going to be helpful to your mission. Right. Their goal was not to be helpful to your mission. So you've done some groundbreaking work in the field of, field, in the field of food studies. You've created this wonderful department at NYU. How do you feel about where nutrition is going today? Oh, I'm very worried about it. Um, because as far as I can tell, you know, I mean, we know vitamins, we know minerals. Um, the basic fundamentals of nutrition are pretty well understood. What we don't know how to do is fix chronic disease and prevent obesity and prevent hunger and the public health and political problems that result from climate change, for example. <laughs> that result from the way we grow, process. Um, but the nutrition science profession as a, as a whole it is heading in two directions. One of them is food as medicine, because uh, food as medicine plays very well politically. You can talk to Republicans about it and they get it right away. And this is the idea that if you feed people nutritious food, they're going to be healthier. Um, if you have prepared meals in hospitals or for people who have certain kinds of illnesses, they'll get better. Uh, so it's very individualized and very much focused on the disease. And then the other direction is what's called precision nutrition, which is um, to develop uh, some sort of way of defining individual nutrition requirements. For, for individual people. This is the antithesis of public health. I'm a public health person. Um, yes, one dietary prescription does not work for everybody, but the basic principles of healthy diets are so simple that the journalist Michael Pollan can do it in seven words. <laughs> Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That's really all there is to it. Once you understand that by food, uh, he means um, foods that are relatively unprocessed. 
I mean, all foods are processed. Some are processed more than others. Relatively unprocessed ones are sure. the healthy ones. But that's really all there is to it. And that kind of diet, you know, unless you have some specific allergy or some specific problem, is going to take care of the, the nutrient needs of most people without any difficulty. And the big problems are political and social and environmental, which is how do we make sure that people in the world have enough to eat? and enough of the right kinds of foods to eat, healthier foods to eat. And that gets us into politics in a big way. So you're retired now from NYU, is that correct? Officially, but I'm currently in my NYU office. I've got my <laughs> office. Um, so I'm still quite connected. Good. And you have your website, foodpolitics.com, where you blog about all kinds of things. Yeah, I usually uh, post five times a week, Monday. Yeah. And that's something that I encourage people to read about because there's always something good little nutritious nuggets that we could read about. Yeah, I'm, I use it as a sort of a personal way to express whatever I'm interested in that's going on currently. Um, and it gives me a chance. First of all, it forces me to keep up, which is very useful. And I get to write about whatever is happening in the food world or in the nutrition world that I find particularly interesting and relevant um, or funny. Some of <laughs> I try to do the funny ones. Some of the some of the things that are going on are very very funny. Funny, funny, sad, but funny. I'm curious about your relationship over the years with NYU. So you had mentioned before the different places that you worked at and how opinionated you were and how that didn't always work out. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but uh, people like people to fall in line in certain places. And you were handed a department that needed a big overhaul, which you did. But I imagine there were some bumpy paths along the way. And I'm, and I'm just wondering how your relationship with NYU unfolded. Well, it depends on who you mean by NYU. Um, I never had any trouble with the administration at all. We were always on the same side. Um, I wanted to make my department a better, stronger, more research-oriented, um, more academically respectable place. And we ended up with food studies as a field, which helped enormously. And that was very much consistent with what the administration was interested in. And never, not once, did anybody ever say to me, we wish you would tone down what you're saying because you're interfering with our donors or you're, you're I mean, that just simply never happened. And the way I explain it is I was hired here with tenure. You know, I had tenure. And, you know, there are people for whom tenure is a license to sit back lean back and never do another thing. But for me, it was a door opener. I mean, it gave me a, a solid platform from which to speak, talk to reporters, teach, do research, write books, write articles, whatever it was I wanted to do. And I'm very fortunate in that the kinds of things that I wanted to do are exactly the things that get rewarded at universities. So I was in the right place at the right time for the kind of work that I wanted to do. I'm not sure any other university um, mm. would have been as accommodating to the kind of research that I do, which is largely 
social science research. Um, and rather than nutrition science, it's, it's humanities research, really. I mean, I was given a courtesy appointment in the sociology department in recognition that I'm doing sociology without a license. Um, so, you know, I thought NYU, I died and gone to heaven. I really did. And it's yeah. just, you know, I, I was on the faculty. Here's a bit something like and yeah. I've, I've been around for five since retirement. I'm still getting connected. I, I think it a, a, was a win for both of you. Well, it certainly was a win for me. I just wondered, you have tremendous amount of experience and accomplishments. And do you have a message for those that are coming up in the world of food? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I get asked, the reason for writing the memoir was to answer the questions that I get asked all the time about my career. The reason it's slow, called slow cooked <laughs> is because it took me a very long time to figure, to figure it all out. And so my, my message for students who are trying to decide what they should study in order to change the food system, which is what many of them have as their goal, is to go into the field that seems like it's the most fun because it doesn't matter which field you're in. The wonderful thing about food is that it's totally interdisciplinary. And so, um, you know, in our department at NYU, we have a political scientist, a sociologist, an economist, a historian, um, somebody trained in nutrition, somebody trained in molecular biology. Everybody has something to contribute. And the... Uh, and their particular perspective on it is really useful. Mm -hmm. So that, um, you know, I, I mean, so from my perspective, they can do whatever they want. They should do what's the most fun. They could go to law school. They could go to medical school. They can uh, seriously do whatever uh, seems to them to be most interesting and useful and then focus on food. And this may have seemed radical when we first started the food studies program in 1996, but now there are probably 60 or 70 food studies programs just in the United States, and almost every academic department at NYU has some, some food course in it or some food program in it someplace. Everybody wants to study about food. It's we all eat. We all love it. We all have personal experience with it. It turns out to be just a wonderful way to teach. I loved every minute of it. Well, that's a great way to wrap up. That's why I call this podcast, It's All About Food, because it touches all disciplines. I want to thank you, not just for today, but for over the decades. You've always been very generous with your time, speaking at numerous different engagements and events. And I've I've gotten to hear you many times and have always appreciated it. So thank you. Thanks, Karen. It was fun talking to you. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. That was Marion Nissel, author of Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. And just before we go, I want to let you know that the What Vegans Eat blog is back. Gary DiMatteo and I are sharing the adventure that we just came back from, our 25-day magical European tour. So I hope you'll visit responsibleeatingandliving.com, read our blog, 
and let us know what you think. I'm Karen Hartglass. You've been listening to It's All About Food. Have a delicious week.